0: Hi there! Did you know that nice used to mean stupid? Or that heckling used to be an important trade in Scottish port cities? Or that the connection between a fallen tree and important pieces of narrative exposition in Star Trek can be found on the open ocean way back in the Age of Sail? If you like language and learning nerdy bits of trivia behind everyday words, come along and join us at Lexitecture, a podcast about word origins and histories. Find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching Lexitecture, L-E-X-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E, on our website, lexitexture.com, and anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 92, The End of an Era, Part 2. Today's episode is brought to you by our new Patreon supporter, Chris Fairnet, as well as PayPal donor, William Davis. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Demoralized by the plague and the breakdown of their city, and frustrated by being forbidden to march out and offer battle twice now, Thucydides says that the Athenians again blamed Pericles for persuading them to go to war and began to hold him responsible for all of their misfortunes. Some looked to religion to support their discontent, recalling an oracle from the recent past that had predicted that a Dorian war will come and plague with it, which implicitly cast blame on Pericles for starting a war with the Spartans when he knew that plague would soon follow. Public perception was made even worse since the plague that ravaged Athens had not entered the Peloponnese, because since plagues were traditionally seen as a divine punishment for human actions that angered the gods, some even became convinced that this plague was the result of Pericles' association with religious skeptics, like the Eleatic philosopher Anaxagoras and the Sophist Protagoras, whose views we discussed in episodes 83 and 87 respectively. Others simply held him personally responsible for the plague, believing, somewhat rightly so, that his policy of crowding them in the city led to their misfortune and so the other political factions used this discontentment to their advantage. Pericles' faction can be considered as the moderate here, as they supported Pericles' policy of a war of attrition to wear the enemy out. But those factions who were in favor of peace renewed their urging to make terms with the enemy, while the advocates of a more aggressive war criticized Pericles for allowing great harm to be done to Attica, while achieving nothing significant at sea. On another level, the poet Hermippus presented one of his comedies, probably the Mori or Fates, in the spring of 430 BC that charged Pericles with cowardice and with carousing with his buddies while the Spartans were invading Attica. Although he is one of the comic poets whose works are no longer available to us, fortunately we have a quotation preserved in Plutarch's Life of Pericles. He addressed Pericles as follows, quote, King of the Satyrs, why don't you ever lift a spear, but instead only use dreadful words to wage the war, assuming the character of the cowardly Telius. But if a little knife is sharpened on a wet stone, you roar as though bitten by the fierce Cleon." Hermippus was a bitter opponent of Pericles and was a political ally of Cleon, and Cleon was Pericles's major political opponent in the last years of his life, who was an advocate of an aggressive, active war. Meanwhile, the siege of Potidaea was still ongoing and draining the treasury's finances. And so the embattled Pericles looked there for a much needed victory to save money and to bolster Athenian morale, which might assuage his current domestic problems. At the very next meeting of the Ecclesia, after Pericles had arrived back from leading the fleet to raid the Peloponnese, it was voted on to send the fleet back out once more. So while the plague was still raging on in Athens, in the summer of 430 BC, Pericles sent out the Athenian fleet once again for two different missions under three of his fellow Strategoi. In one mission, Hagnon and Cleopompus led an unspecified number of ships into the northern Aegean with the charge of ending the siege of Potidaea and suppressing the Halkidic rebellion in general. At the same time, 30 triremes were sent around the Peloponnesus to station and operate from Naupactus in the Corinthian Gulf with the task of keeping an eye on ships sailing in or out of Corinth and the Gulf. These were to be under the command of Formio. During the late 430s BC, Formio had become Athens's premier naval commander. In addition to achieving victories against the rebellious Halkidians in the north, he also had aided the Amphilochians and the acarnanians on the northwestern coast of Greece against the Corinthian colony of Ambracia, which resulted in Athens gaining Acarnania as an ally. But at that time in 430 BC, Formio had not been re-elected to the generalship for the upcoming year, and he was living in poverty, disgrace, and dishonor. Although he had been a successful commander through almost three decades of service, like Pericles, he had fallen victim to the people's hunt for scapegoats during the plague. And although he had noble ancestry, he currently was a poor man, because during his generalship at Potidaea, due to Athens' financial constraints and the expensiveness of the siege, he paid his troops from his own personal funds. Furthermore, after his return to Athens, the people censured him for his failures on the campaign and fined him a hundred silver minai. And so, since he no longer had this type of money and was too proud to beg or borrow the money from friends, he was unable to pay the punitive fine. This led to an official ban of Atimia, or dishonor, which meant that he was no longer allowed to set foot on consecrated ground, including the Acropolis, the Agora, and the Peninx. So he left the city and retired to his ancestral home at Paenia, on the far side of Mount Hymetos. His family farm had been destroyed by the raiding Peloponnesian army, and so he settled down to live off the blackened earth, work his fields, and replant his crops. But at one point a little later, in 430 BC, some Akarnanian envoys, who had heard about Formio's situation, had traveled to his home in the hopes of persuading him to come to their lands in an unofficial capacity as an honored guest, who would lead the defense of their country. He had been a hero amongst these people from previous campaigns, as we mentioned. He declined their offer, though. It's likely that the envoys then went to the Athenian people and requested for them to reinstate Formio, and then send him in an official capacity for their protection. Whatever the case, not long after they had banished him, a strong reaction had re-emerged in Formio's favor, and in order to cancel his fine, the Ecclesia resorted to a ruse, which Formio ultimately agreed to. Probably because he was having second thoughts about not coming to his former ally's aid. And so the citizens appointed him in a special capacity to decorate the sanctuary of Dionysus for an upcoming festival. And 100 minai of silver from public funds were handed over to him for this service, which was way more than was necessary. And so he took the excess money and used it to pay his fine. With Formio's debt cleared and his honor restored... The desperate Athenians reinstated one of their most able commanders and placed him in charge of a special mission, tasked with defending their western allies from the Peloponnesians. Formio needed to keep an eye on the Peloponnesians because that summer they had sent out their fleet for the first time in the war. The Spartans had grown frustrated by the Athenians' unwillingness to fight them, and the attacks on their coastal cities raised questions about their ability to protect their allies against Athens' navy. So the decision was made to send out 100 Peloponnesian triremes with 1,000 hoplites, 10 on each ship, to attack Sankethos, an island lying off the coast of Elis on the northwestern Peloponnese that was an ally of Athens. This fleet was commanded by Knemos, the Corinthian navarch in charge of Spartan naval forces. His mission was to take the island and establish it as a base to protect the western Peloponnesians and their allies in the northwest against Athenian attacks. When the Spartans landed on Zankythos, they disembarked from their ships and ravaged most of the countryside, but were unable to take the island and were forced to sail home again. It was in response to this that Formio made his base at Naupactus to monitor Peloponnesian naval movements going in and out of the Corinthian Gulf, as well as Sicilian or Italian grain ships sailing in. But it was not the Peloponnesians, but the Ambraciates who would thrust Formio into action. Toward the close of summer, the Ambraciates, with a number of allied local tribesmen, began to plan an attack against Amphilochian Argos. The city's exact location is not certain, but it may have sat on the eastern end of the Ambracian Gulf. This Argos was the largest and most powerful city in the region of Amphilochia, and it is known as Amphilochian Argos to distinguish it from the older Argos that is in the Peloponnese. Anyways, they had a long standing rivalry with the Ambraciates that spanned for centuries. In addition, the Amphilochian Argives were allies with the Acarnanians, who in turn were allies with Athens. So when the Ambratiates and their allies marched on the Amphilochian Argos, the Acarnanians sent word for assistance from Formio. He heeded their plea and immediately sailed off from Naupactus with his 30 Athenian triremes. Meanwhile, when the Ambraciates and their allies arrived at Amphilochian Argos, they failed in taking the city. And after the arrival of the Athenian fleet in the Ambracian Gulf, the combined force of Athenians, Acarnanians, and Amphilochian Argives defeated the Ambratiates in a battle, the details of which were not recorded. But those Ambratiates who were captured were then enslaved. Afterwards, since the sailing season was almost over, Formio led the fleet back to Athens. Meanwhile, the other Athenian fleet under Hagnon and Cleopompus had sailed northwards to the Halkidiki in order to reinforce the siege of Potidaea. Wooden siege machinery had been loaded onto the ships, and as soon as they arrived, they brought up their siege engines against Potidaea and tried every possible means of taking it, but they did not succeed either. The main reason for their failure was that the plague apparently had managed to get aboard the Athenian ships before it sailed out of Piraeus and upon arriving at Potidaea, it spread rapidly throughout the Athenian camp. It committed such a havoc that it crippled the Athenian forces. In fact, in about 40 days, 1,050 of the 4,000 troops that had just arrived at Potidaea had died from the plague, while the rest were too ill to continue on. Even many of the previously healthy soldiers who had not been in Athens at all during the past year had managed to catch the infection from Hagnon's troops though their casualties are not reported. Ultimately, Hagnon returned with his ships and his remaining hoplites back to Athens, and the soldiers that had been stationed there remained to carry on the siege of Potidaea. Back in Athens, with the departure of these generals out on the sea, Pericles found his domestic support weakened since these men were his political friends, and so it must have been in their absence that the attacks against him were finally successful. Because in the late summer 430 BC, with the plague still raging, the Athenians turned against their leader. Some frustrated Athenians, who were part of the pro-peace faction, had tried to open negotiations for peace with the Spartans. Their mission did not succeed though. The sources are silent on the details, but considering Sparta's position of strength relative to the Athenians' position at the moment, their stipulations no doubt were steep, and so they were conditions that Athens could not accept. These probably included everything that the Spartans had asked for prior to the war, that being Athens' withdrawal of its troops from Potidea, the rescinding of the Megarian Decree, and the restoration of autonomy to the Greeks, which effectively meant the abandonment of the Athenian Empire. When the peace terms were rejected, Thucydides sums up the situation in Athens best when he writes, quote, Being totally at a loss as to what to do, they, the Athenian people, attack Pericles, and when he saw that they are exasperated and doing everything as he had anticipated, he called it an assembly, since he was still general. He wanted to put confidence into them and, leading them away from their anger, to restore their calm and their courage. End quote. And so, this new wave of public uproar forced Pericles to defend himself in the Athenian ecclesia in what would ultimately be his final speech. It is tough, emotional, and markedly less idealistic than the funeral oration revealing Pericles' virtues, but also his bitterness towards his compatriots ingratitude. gratitude. And so Pericles mustered one last effort to persuade his fellow citizens to stay the course. He began by rebuking the Athenians and calling upon them to hold the good of the state above their own private concerns. He asserts that Athens has no choice now but to continue on with this war, or to submit to Sparta's demands, and that his policy still remains the correct one, except for the weakness of the Athenians themselves, who must overcome private griefs caused by the unforeseeable plague. He made clear that the responsibility lies with the Athenian people, as much as it does him. Quote, If you were persuaded by me to go to war because you thought I had the qualities necessary for leadership, at least moderately more than other men, it is not right that I should now be blamed for doing wrong. End quote. He essentially argued that since he was forthright with them from the onset, they knew his policies going into the war, so there is no logic in them being mad after he enacted the policies which he said that he was going to employ. He then stressed that they need to persist by extolling the greatness of the Athenian Empire and its naval forces, arguing that the Athenians' naval supremacy still permits them to go wherever they wish at sea, and so the loss of their land and houses is only trivial and that they must face the war with confidence based on a true assessment of their resources. While his previous speeches were more aimed at prudence in the face of attacks from aggressive war hawks like Cleon, this speech clearly is aimed against those in the pro-peace faction, and so Pericles takes a somewhat different pro-war tone. Apparently, the pro-peace faction had stressed the moral argument against empire and war, and so Pericles stressed the dangers of peace, pointing out that to give up the empire would put themselves at risk because although the empire might now be a tyranny and it might have been wrong to acquire it, still the Athenians, having a tiger by the tail, would put themselves in great danger by letting it go, as they are now hated by those that they rule over. Pericles concluded that all has gone according to plan except for the plague and he called on the Athenians to cease parleying with the Spartans and to redouble their efforts to win the war. Although he had once again managed to win over the crowd in the Ecclesia and embassies to Sparta did cease, this would only be temporary, and his enemies were finally able to undermine his political position after they brought forward some charge of corruption against him, as was common in Athens when politicians had ceased to please their constituency. The result was that the citizen body voted to depose Pericles as Strategos, probably in September of that year, at the meeting when the usual vote took place to confirm the magistrates in office, who had previously been elected for the following year. And so, now that he was out of office, Pericles was ordered to stand trial on a charge of embezzlement. And according to Plutarch, the rising and dynamic Cleon was the public prosecutor in Pericles' trial. At the same time, Hagnon, Cleopompus, and what was left of their decimated army had finally returned from Potidaea, Their failure only diminished Athenian morale even more. Pericles was eventually convicted and punished with a heavy fine. This relatively light punishment for the charge, as he could have faced the death penalty, indicates that the jury was not fully convinced of his guilt, or at least was unwilling to take extreme action against a man who had been their leader for so many years. The fine, though, was still significant, and he needed the help of his friends to pay it off. According to Plutarch, the fine was somewhere between 15 and 50 talents. The hits didn't just stop there with Pericles' political troubles though, as his domestic affairs were also in a sorry state. Not only did he lose many of his close friends during the plague, but also for some time his family was torn apart by an internal feud. According to Plutarch, the eldest of his legitimate sons, Xanthippus, was so displeased with the meager allowance that his father was giving him that he requested an unspecified amount of money from one of Pericles' friends, pretending that his father had ordered him to do it. So when the friend afterwards demanded repayment for the loan, an unknowing Pericles refused. After he found out what his son had done, he brought a lawsuit against him, probably either because the loan was substantial to teach his son a valuable lesson, or both? Well, if it was the latter, it backfired tremendously, because the young Xanthippus, who had political ambitions of his own, was so incensed at his father's response that he began to slander him publicly. In particular, as we discussed in episode 88, he focused on Pericles' relationship with Aspasia, as well as with the Sophists, who frequent in Athens. And it's at this point, with the backdrop of Xanthippus making fun of his father, where Plutarch gives the anecdotal story that Pericles once spent all day with Protagoras, discussing a hypothetical question concerning a spectator who was hit by a javelin and accidentally killed in an athletic contest, asking if the athlete who threw the javelin is responsible or the judges of the contest for the death of the spectator. Anyways, this relationship between Pericles and Protagoras began to arouse many negative reactions, and it's most unfortunate for Pericles that the quarrel that he had with his son would not be reconciled, as Xanthippus too fell sick and died from the plague the following year. Meanwhile, the Peloponnesian failure at taking Xankythos made it abundantly clear to the Spartans that they needed a greater fleet than they had, or could even afford to build if they were to fight the Athenians at sea. So they sent an embassy to King Artaxerxes of Persia to seek an alliance. Among those sent were Aristeus, the Corinthian who led the private army at Potidaea, three Spartans, one Tegean, and a private individual from Argos. On the way, the envoy stopped at the court of Cetalcus in Thrace and asked him to abandon the Athenian alliance, supply funds, and join with the Peloponnesians in relieving Potidaea. They also hoped to persuade Satakis to help transport them to Pharnabazus, the Persian satrap of the Hellespont, who would then send them up country to Artaxerxes. But at the behest of two Athenian ambassadors, who were present at the Thracian king's court, Satakis declined this offer from the Peloponnesian envoys. The Athenians also persuaded Satakis' son, Sidochus, who himself had been given Athenian citizenship, as we mentioned last episode to prevent these men from crossing the Hellespont, and thus to stop them from meeting with the Persians. And so, Sadokas, accordingly, had them arrested and handed them over to the Athenian ambassadors, who put them to death immediately without a trial. Their bodies were thrown into a pit and denied proper burial. This religious atrocity and breach of diplomatic protocol took place while Pericles was out of power, so it was probably the work of the aggressive war faction." Thucydides believes that the Athenians did this for fear that Aristeus would escape and be a menace to them once again, like he was at Potidaea. The official explanation, though, was that it was in retaliation for brutality at the hands of the Spartans, who they claimed had treated all Athenian, allied, and neutral merchant ships as enemies since the start of the war by butchering all those that they came across and threw them into pits. And so the Athenians supposedly were returning the favor. Regardless, such behavior by both sides was a harbinger of even worse atrocities that would be committed throughout the rest of the war. With the aggressive war faction seemingly in control, one would think that the status quo would change also. But nothing much different in terms of military strategy happened after Pericles was dismissed from office, though there were a few notable events. During the ensuing winter of 430-429 B.C., Six ships under Melisander were sent to Caria and Lycia to collect tribute. Usually Thucydides doesn't mention when such collections of money took place, so since he did here, it is generally believed that it was because the tribute had been increased. So the Athenians, who had their fields devastated twice now, and were still engaged in a costly siege of Potidaea, were trying to increase revenue by tightening the collection of tribute in the empire. It's likely, then, that this was at the instigation of the aggressive war faction in charge. Anyways, these six ships were also tasked with preventing privately owned boats that were licensed by the Peloponnesians from attacking merchant ships coming out of Phaselis and other ports along the southern Asia Minor coastline. However, Melisander was defeated and killed in a skirmish, with a loss of an unspecified number of his troops. Thucydides doesn't mention who, how, or where this occurred, though, just that it happened, In addition, that winter, the Athenians finally saw the long-awaited surrender of Potidaea, whose provisions had run dry. In fact, the people had grown so hungry for food, that Thucydides reports with great horror that some Potidaeans had resorted to eating one another. So in these dire circumstances, they offered proposals of surrender to the Athenian generals in command, those being Xenophon, not the historian, Hestiodorus, and Phanomachus, Xenophon will show up a little bit later, but these last two are otherwise insignificant on the historical record. Regardless, following a -a two-and-a-half-year blockade that cost a now-depleted Athenian treasury over 2,000 talents, these three generals were eager to accept the Potidaean surrender. And so the terms of the capitulation were not harsh, but actually quite favorable. The Potidaeans, including their children, wives, and auxiliaries, were permitted to depart to wherever they could find asylum in the Halkidiki and elsewhere. However, soon after they had arrived back in Athens, charges were levied against these three generals, claiming that they had overstepped their authority in making peace without consulting the Ecclesia. No doubt this outrage was stirred up by the aggressive war faction, since these three generals had been elected alongside Pericles, and so were most likely a part of his more moderate faction. If this is true, then the fact that the generals were acquitted may suggest that the people's anger towards Pericles had begun to lessen, or at the least, that most Athenians were just happy that the long and costly siege of Potidaea had finally ended. Regardless, shortly thereafter, the Athenians sent out their own settlers to colonize the now deserted city, since its location and the possession of it held strategic importance. Plus, the Halkidians based at Olympus and their neighbors, the Batians, still continued in their revolt against Athens. This event wrapped up the second year of the war, and the Athenians after two years were severely wounded. Their fields and homes were destroyed, the plague was still devastating their city, and of the 5,000 talents of expendable funds that they had at the start of the war, over half, 2,700, had already been spent. In the first two years of the war, the Athenians sent large and expensive expeditions against the Peloponnese, but they seem to have achieved little, and Thucydides' narration of them is very disjointed and unemphatic. As we have seen, Athens began the war spending money at a rate which it could not afford to continue. The naval strategy and Thucydides' presentation of it therefore was problematic, and various explanations have been attempted. Plutarch writes that it was meant to relieve the overcrowding inside Athens. And there is probably something in that. In addition, although Thucydides does not mention it, there might have been hopes that their naval expeditions would entice Argos out of its neutrality. But if that was the case, they weren't successful. It seems then that Thucydides' emphasis on the strategy of avoiding defeat and pushing through despite the possibility of a long war reflects Pericles' public pronouncements. But privately, he had hoped that, if Athens demonstrated that it was invulnerable to the Peloponnesians' attacks, and capable of striking back themselves, they would, within a few years, realize that in challenging Athens' power, they had taken on an impossible task, and admit defeat. And if this is true, then Pericles was very wrong. Even with the expensive siege of Potidaea coming to an end, Sparta's newfound activity on the sea meant that the Athenians would have to spend even more money to maintain the fleet needed to protect their allies. And so at rate of expenditure on par with the first two years, they wouldn't be able to fight any more than two more years. It was probably this realization that explains why the aggressive war faction, now in control of the Athenian government, did not drastically change from Pericles' policy by initiating a major offensive campaign. They simply just did not have the financial resources to support it. As a result, in spite of their suffering and the perceived failure of his strategy, the Athenian people found that the other leaders conducted the war no different or better than Pericles had. And so, they once again re-elected Pericles to the office of strategos at the next elections in the spring of 429 BC, and he would be in charge of Athenian military strategy once again. Arguably, the most famous of all surviving Greek tragedies is Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannos, or Oedipus the King, and it was possibly performed in the spring of 429 BC at the city Dionysia. We discuss this play in great detail in episode 53, so we won't go into detail here. Some scholars, though, have argued that the play holds up a mirror to the tragic fates of Pericles and Athens. Like Pericles, the hero Oedipus had insisted on the rule of reason and order, never suspecting that his own actions and destiny were bringing disaster to the city. Like the Athenians, the people in Sophocles' drama had been struck by a devastating pestilence and called on their leader to save them. Better for you to rule a land with men than an emptiness. Walls and ships are nothing without men living together inside them. End quote. As events spiral downward towards catastrophe, even Queen Jocasta admitted that the ship of state might be doomed. Quote, now we all feel fear, seeing the ship's steersman fail. End quote. It seems likely then that Euripides intended for his play to at least be symbolic of the Athens that he was seeing around him. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network. And today's episode is brought to you by Lightstream. You know what's great about credit cards? The freedom they give to do the things in life that we really want and sometimes need to do. Dinner out? Here's my card. New tires for the car? Here's my card. But what's not so great are the high interest rates. Most people just accept the high interest rates that credit cards charge as a necessary evil. We say to ourselves, well, what are we going to do? Well, here's what you can do. If you have good credit, you can get a low fixed rate credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream and pay off those credit card balances. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and you can get your money as soon as the day you apply. The average credit card company charges over 19% APR, but with Lightstream, you can get a fixed rate as low as 5.95% APR with autopay. And so now you can pay off high interest credit cards and save money with a much lower rate. If you want an even lower interest rate, apply today at lightstream.com slash THOAG and get an additional interest rate discount. That's lightstream.com slash THOAG for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash THOAG. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash THOAG for more information. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Meanwhile, in the early spring of 429 BC, Formio was sent back out to Nepoctus, tasked once again to monitor the Corinthian Gulf, and to protect Athenian allies in the west. This would be the only fleet sent out for the year, and the Ecclesia voted to only send him with 20 triremes. Still, Formio was Athens' best naval commander, and if anyone was going to make do with less, it was him. At the onset of the war, the Athenians had launched a war fleet of 180 ships, with 150 in the second year. So a total of 20 in year 3 just goes to show that Athenian manpower had been drastically reduced because of the plague. Furthermore, even foreign mercenaries refused to hire themselves out to a devastated Athens. The fear of plague was so widespread that a third Spartan invasion of Attica was abandoned as well, as their troops were unwilling to risk contact with the diseased enemy. And so, in May 429 BC, the Peloponnesian army bypassed the plague ridden Attica and chose to march against Plataea instead. This was at the behest of the Thebans, who, with Attica now off limits, were eager to use the Peloponnesian army to advance their own interests. The Spartans agreed to the Thebans' desires here because they were one of their more powerful allies and because they weren't going to ravage Attica anyways that summer. Regardless, once the Peloponnesian army reached the territory of Plataea, they set up camp outside the city. Just as the army was making preparations to lay waste to the countryside, the Plataeans hastened to send envoys to Archidamus. These envoys essentially protested that an attack on Plataea would be in violation of the oath of Plataea that the Spartans had sworn following their victory there in the Persian War, as we recounted in episode 39. They appealed to the Spartans' deep religious sense, pleading, quote, your fathers rewarded us for the courage and patriotism that we displayed at the perilous epoch, but you do just the contrary, coming with our bitterest enemies, the Thebans, to enslave us. Therefore, we appeal to the gods to whom the oaths were then made, to the gods of our ancestors, and lastly to those of our country, and call upon you to refrain from violating our territory or transgressing the oaths, and to let us live independent, as Pausanias decreed. End quote. Archidamus wasn't an unjust ruler, and so he must have realized how bad an attack on Plataea would have looked to the rest of the Greek world, so he probably had hoped that diplomacy would have prevented any sort of fighting. And so, in response, he gave the Plataeans the option of abandoning their alliance with Athens, and either siding with the Spartans, or at the very least, to become neutral. He also said that if they chose to become a Spartan ally, or opted for neutrality, they would have to evacuate their lands for the duration of the war and the Spartans would hold it for them in trust, keep its land in cultivation, pay rent for its use, and restore it intact after the conflict ended. After hearing what Archidamus had proposed, the envoys went back into their city and discussed matters with the rest of the Plataeans. Many believed that these offers were merely a charade, because if they were lent it to Sparta, Thebes would almost assuredly not allow them to gain control of their lands again. Furthermore, their women and children were all back in Athens, so they couldn't turn on the Athenians either. But if they didn't give in to Spartan demands, their city would most assuredly be taken. After all, the Athenians were not even willing to send an army out into the field for a hoplite battle to preserve their own territory in Attica, and so it was highly unlikely that they would come to the aid of the Plataeans. This plight illustrates the helplessness that many of the smaller Greek states must have felt when they found themselves stuck between the two great hegemons of Sparta and Athens during this period. Ultimately, the Plataeans decided that it was impossible to make a decision without first consulting the Athenians. And so, the envoys told the Spartans of their intentions and then went off to speak with the Athenians about the Spartan proposal. In the meantime, the Spartans conceded to a truce agreeing not to lay waste to their territory. When the Plataean envoys arrived in Athens, predictably, the Athenians urged them to keep true to their alliance, promising that, quote, "...since they became their allies, they have never abandoned them, and they would not now stand aside and allow them to be wronged, but would aid them with all of their power." End quote and so with assurance from the Athenians that they would come to their aid, the Plataeans decided to remain loyal to Athens and to reject the Spartan proposal, knowing that they would surely lay waste to their lands and lay siege to their city. The Plataeans this time did not send the envoys back out to Archidamus to let him know of their decision. Instead, they answered from atop their walls that it was impossible for them to do as the Spartans had proposed. As soon as he had received this answer, Archidamus knew what he had to do next, and so he offered prayers to the gods in order to justify his impending assault on Plataea. Since the Spartans were a deeply religious people, and thus were fearful of the ill will of the gods, Archidamus insisted in what amounted to political propaganda that aggressive military action against the Plataeans would not be in violation of their previous oath, as it was the Plataeans who were in the wrong for turning down their reasonable offer. And so, believing that he was in the right, Archidamus began to make preparations for an assault on Plataea, with the aim of compelling the city to his demands. Thucydides here goes into extreme detail about the Peloponnesian siege preparations, and the Plataean counterworks. First, Archidamus had all of the surrounding fruit trees cut down, and used as a palisade to enclose and prevent further exit from the city. He then had a mound thrown up against the city, composed of wood, stones, and earth. The Peloponnesians then cut down timber from nearby Mount Kitharone and built it up on either side of the mound, laying it like latticework to serve as a wall. Thucydides says that the Peloponnesians worked at this mound wall for 70 days. While this was taking place, the Plataeans built their own counter wall against the same part of the city that the Peloponnesians' mound was being constructed. It was made of bricks, which they took from neighboring houses, and timber was used to bind the counter wall and to prevent it from weakening as it grew tall. It also was covered with animal skins and hides, to prevent the wood from being attacked with burning missiles. Once their mound was completed, the Peloponnesians then began their assault on the city. At this point, only those left inside Plataea were the 400 Plataeans and 80 Athenians who made up the city's defensive garrison plus the 110 women who stayed behind to cook for them. Plataea not only had strong defensive walls, but its counter wall was so situated that a small force could defend it adequately against an assault by even the entire Peloponnesian army. And so when the Peloponnesians brought forward their siege engines to take the city, many were broken by the Plataean defenses. They were able to destroy them by using their own defensive machines in the form of large iron beams that were held aloft by long iron chains from either extremity of two poles that sat atop their counter wall. The beam projected over the counterwall, and when they let go of it, at the proper angle, momentum caused it to destroy several of the Peloponnesian battering rams. This naturally caused the Peloponnesians to change tactics, and so they opted to burn the city down, with the aid of wind. By placing bundles of brushwood up against the wall and lighting it with sulfur and pitch. Thanks to the wind, Thucydides reports that the fire's magnitude was greater than any that anyone had ever produced by human agency. It almost devastated Plataea, as a large part of the city was completely ablaze. But they were spared when a storm of heavy rain put the fire out. So having failed with this method, the Peloponnesians now turned to plan C. It was now late summer so since they were unable to take the city by assault, the Peloponnesians planned to besiege it by preparing for its circumvallation, meaning they built a wall to surround and isolate the city as if it was an island. Thucydides says that the wall was finished before the rising of the Arcturus star, which as we discussed in episode 86, occurs on approximately September 20th. With the completion of the wall, most of the Peloponnesian forces were dismissed to go back to their homes and to farm their lands and prepare for the upcoming harvest. The various contingents that stayed behind were assigned a portion of the wall to defend, and the largest portion was the half defended by the Thebans. Meanwhile, the Athenians hadn't sat idle for the campaign season of 429 BC. At the same time that the Peloponnesian army was marching to Plataea in May, the Athenians took the offensive in the northeast. Even after the fall of Potidaea the previous winter, the rebellion still continued throughout the Halkidiki and the Thracian region which continued to deprive Athens of imperial revenue from the area, and the Athenians were fearful that its continued existence might encourage other rebellions throughout the empire. So they sent back out Xenophon, not the historian, and two other unnamed generals with a force of 2,000 hoplites, 500 light troops, and 200 cavalrymen to crush the revolts of the Halkidians and the Batians once and for all. They first arrived at the town of Spartalus, which sat to the northwest of Potidaea and to the west of Olympus. After destroying the town's grain fields outside the city, they were able to take Spartalus with the aid of a treasonous democratic, pro-Athenian faction within the city. This was a pattern that would be repeated throughout the war, as factional strife between oligarchs and democrats intensified inside Polis. and occasionally, democrats in oligarchic pro-Spartan cities would betray their cities to Athens, and oligarchs in democratic pro-Athenian cities would hand over theirs to Sparta. Anyways, after the Athenian forces won an initial victory at Spartalus, those of the pro-oligarchic faction requested aid from the garrison of Halkidian hoplites and other troops at Olynthus. When they arrived at Spartalus, this combined army of those from Halkidiki, Olynthus, and Spartalus engaged the Athenians in front of the city. In the ensuing so-called Battle of Spartalus, local Halkidian hoplites and some of their auxiliaries made up the center and right-hand portions of their army while hired Peloponnesian mercenaries made up the left side. Although the Halkidian cavalry and Peltasts managed to defeat those of the Athenians, when the Halkidian and Athenian phalanxes clashed, it was clear that the Athenians held a great advantage. As the locals on the Halkidian side began to give way first, this forced the Peloponnesian mercenaries to fall back as well. As a result, the Halkidian army became worn and strained, And so the Halkidian hoplites and some of their auxiliaries were forced to retreat to Spartalus. When light infantry reinforcements arrived from the towns of Crucis and Olynthus, they mustered a second attack on the Athenian hoplites. This attack was much stronger and better coordinated than before. The Halkidians had learned that the Athenians did not have experience or the necessary equipment to adequately defend themselves against a large number of javelins. So this go-around, they implemented a new battlefield tactic with the peltasts at the center. The peltasts were troops armed only with a small, light shield, a javelin, and a short sword. Unhindered by body armor, they could move much more quickly than the fully armed hoplite, whose equipment was both far heavier and far more expensive than theirs. So these lighter-armed Halkidian troops were able to ambush the Athenian hoplites from a distance with their javelins, while the Halkidian cavalry rode up upon them. The Athenian hoplites tried multiple counterattacks to defend themselves, but each time the Halkidians were able to evade their attacks. Since the Athenians could not come to grips with the enemy light-armed troops or horsemen, this caused panic amongst their back ranks. Ultimately, those in the back lost their nerve and began to abandon those at the front, allowing their army to be overwhelmed, surrounded, and then routed. Those Athenians who survived then fled to Potidaea where they took refuge. In total, Athenian losses were 430 of their 2,200 men, but all three generals were killed in the battle, including Xenophon. Besides his role at Potidaea and Spartalus, nothing else is known of him either. After the Athenians recovered their dead under truce, what was left of their army returned to Athens. The Halkidians and Bodians then set up a trophy, took up their dead, and dispersed to their various cities. The expedition was an abject disaster for the Athenians. Between a fifth to a fourth of the Athenian troops were killed in this battle, plus all three generals. A brutal defeat while trying to suppress a revolt in their empire, which showed to them the sacrifices that would be required of them if they wished to win the war. Fortunately, the Athenians had fared much better on the sea. That same summer, and simultaneously with the Peloponnesian army's expedition against Plataea, and the Athenians' attack against Spartalus, the Peloponnesian navy busied itself with a campaign in the northwest. This was instigated by the Chaonians and Ambratiates, two allies of the Peloponnesian League who sought to keep Athenian influence out of the northwest region, and so they proposed that the Peloponnesians should attack and detach the whole of the region of Arcanania from Athens' grip. In doing so, they envisioned that Arcanania would become the first step in a grand strategy in which the Peloponnesians would successfully be able to prevent the Athenians from attacking the Peloponnese with their navy and so they sent envoys to Sparta who argued that if a combined assault were made by land and sea, the coastal Acarnanians would be unable to resist and the conquest of Zankythos and Cephalonia would easily follow. This in turn would allow them to attack the Athenian stronghold of Naupactus from all sides and eradicate the Athenians from the Corinthian Gulf once and for all, which would make their cruise around the Peloponnese a lot less convenient. At hearing this, the Peloponnesians, Especially the Corinthians were persuaded, and so they voted to assemble a much larger fleet and send a thousand hoplites to Acarnania. On the surface, this seems like it would have been an easy endeavor, as the Athenians only had 20 ships, led by Formio, plying the waters around Naupactus, and the Caonians and Ambraciates were allies familiar with the territory. But here would be one of the many examples where the Spartans engaged in dangerous undertakings that they were uncomfortable doing, but did so because they were led by the interests of their allies. Once again, the Peloponnesian fleet was placed under the command of Knemos, a Corinthian navarch who had been in charge of the failed attack on Zankinthos the previous year. At the same time, orders were sent to the allies to begin equipping a fleet as quickly as possible to meet Knemos at Lucas. So while Corinth, Sicyon, and the rest of their neighbors prepared the fleet, Canemos sailed with a thousand hoplites and an unspecified number of ships that had already been available. He managed to slip past Formio's fleet at Naupactus and sailed to Lucas, where he joined with their Greek allies from Ambracia and Anactorion, and a large number of non-Greek allies from the region of Epirus, including Caonia, Thrasprotus, Melosia, Atentania, Paraeae, and Orestes. Perdiccas II of Macedon also decided to switch allegiances from the Athenians to the Peloponnesians once again, and so he sent a thousand Macedonian troops to join in the assault on Acarnania. However, they would not arrive in time. Canemos also decided not to wait on the Peloponnesian reinforcements to arrive at Lucas. He presumably believed that his current forces were sufficient enough for the overland march. Regardless, he sent word for the Peloponnesian reinforcements to link up with him on the Akarnanian coastline once he subdued the region. And so, with his current combined forces, Canemo set out overland through Amphilochia to Akarnania, sacking the undefended village of Lamnea along the way. As soon as the Acarnanians had realized that they were being invaded by a large land army, the various cities made no attempt at coming together for a unified resistance, but instead chose to remain and defend their own towns and sent a message to Formio asking for help. At the same time, a report also arrived to Formio saying that preparations were being made for a large fleet to sail out from Corinth and Sicyon. And so Formio was caught in a dilemma. On the one hand, he had been tasked with protecting Athens' allies in the west, and without his help, a Carnania might fall to the Peloponnesians. But on the other hand, he was also tasked with preventing ships from sailing in and out of the Corinthian Gulf, which he had already failed at once by being unable to prevent Canemos and his ships from eluding his own ships. In addition, the close timing of the fleet about to launch from Corinth and Sicyon No doubt was in coordination with Canemos' land invasion, suggesting that it was an attempt to draw him away from Naupactus, which would leave the city unguarded. After mulling it over, he wagered, wrongly, that the Peloponnesians would wait for the reinforcements before proceeding with their attack, and so Formio told the No Doubt Unhappy, a Carnanian messenger, that he could not abandon his post but that he would still be assisting the Akarnanians by cutting off the Peloponnesian reinforcements and preventing them from meeting up with Canemos' land army. Meanwhile, Canemos continued his march southeastwards through Akarnania. His target was Stratus, the largest Akarnanian city, which he believed was key to the campaign. Because once it was taken, the rest of the country would speedily come over. The Peloponnesians and their allies marched on Stratus in three divisions. The Chaonians and the rest of the non-Greeks were in the center, the Leucadians and Anactorians were on the right, and Canemos, the Peloponnesians and Ambratiates were on the left. Initially, they advanced in good order, with the intention of encamping near Stratus and attempting to take the city by force if they failed to succeed diplomatically. But when they arrived just outside Stratus, before they had stopped to make their camps, the Chaonians, who were filled with self-confidence as they had the highest reputation amongst the non-Greek tribes in the center contingent, rushed forward to take the city by assault and obtain the sole glory for themselves. In the ensuing disorder, the rest of the non greeks soon followed after them to fight as well. The Stratians, though, had set up ambushes around the city. So as soon as the Chaonians approached, they were engaged in close quarters. A panic seized the Chaonians, and a great number of them were slain. Almost immediately, the rest of the non-Greek tribes turned and retreated. When they joined up with the rest of the Greeks, the combined army stopped where they were and chose not to advance any further. This is because the Stratians chose not to engage them in a pitched battle, but contented themselves with using their knowledge of the terrain and their skill with slinging projectiles from a distance to harass the enemy. Thucydides says that the Acarnanians as a whole excelled at this mode of warfare. Like with the Athenians at Spartalus, this guerrilla style of warfare distressed Canemis' more traditional land army so much, as they could not move quick enough to avoid the missiles while wearing their massive hoplite armor and equipment. And so, as soon as night fell, Canemus withdrew his army out of harm's way to the Annapas River, which was about nine miles from Stratus to the south. On the next day, they recovered their dead under truce, and the Stratians set up a trophy for their victory. Canemus then led his army south, near the Acarnanian coastline, to the town of Oeneidae, which was friendly to the Peloponnesians. There, he waited for the reinforcements to arrive from the Peloponnesian fleet. At about that time, the Peloponnesian fleet was finally put together. Each state that contributed to the armament had its own general. For the Corinthians, who supplied the largest portion, their commanders were Malchaon, Isocrates, not the famous Attic orator, and Agathocardus. Once again, these three are otherwise insignificant on the historical record. Anyways, as the Peloponnesian fleet sailed northwest out of Corinth and Sicyon, along the Peloponnesian coast towards Naupactus, They were not expecting to be engaged in a sea battle, since the Peloponnesians had 47 ships, while the Athenians only had 20. But at this time, the Peloponnesian triremes were functioning more like transports, carrying large troop reinforcements to the southern coast of Acarnania, rather than high-speed attack vessels, and so they were inherently slower and less maneuverable than the Athenian triremes. Although by this point, the triremes' design was standardized. Some ships excelled in speed due to superior construction, age, condition, the training and rigor of their crews, or some combination of these factors. In particular here, the faster, more maneuverable Athenian ships and the superior training of their crews and steersmen allowed them to offset the Peloponnesian fleet's superior numbers. Formio, though, knew that attacking a numerically superior fleet inside the narrow portion of the gulf would likely have been disastrous and so he set in motion a plan that would allow him to attack them in the open sea, where his tactics would be the most effective. Geographically speaking, to the west of Naupactus sat Cape Antareum, a long finger that juts out into the gulf, guarding its narrowest entrance, less than a mile, across from the Peloponnesian city of Rheum so he decided to allow the Peloponnesian fleet to sail west past Naupactus and to clear the narrow straits before he would set his battle plan in motion. Because of this, the ensuing naval fight is often known by scholars as the Battle of Rheum, although as we will see why very shortly, other scholars may perhaps call it the Battle of Petrae. Anyways, while the Peloponnesian fleet was coasting alongside their own shore, The Athenian ships across the gulf kept watch on them and mirrored their movements along the Aetolian coastline. The Peloponnesians then passed between the capes and entered the open sea, and once they reached Petrae in Achaea, they put in for the night, while the Athenians did the same on the opposite shoreline. Formio, though, suspected that the Peloponnesians might attempt a night crossing, and he turned out to be right. Because that night, under the cover of darkness, the Peloponnesians tried to turn northwards to sail across the gulf to the southern coast of Aetolia, where they were met unexpectedly in mid-channel by the Athenian fleet and forced into battle. Despite their great superiority in numbers, as we mentioned, most of their ships were rigged as transports instead of fighting vessels, and so the Peloponnesian fleet chose to adopt a defensive formation, as their ships aligned in a large enclosed circle with their prows facing outwards, and were positioned close enough together to prevent the Athenians from breaking through. At the center were the five fastest vessels, prepared to sail out at a moment's notice to help plug any breaches by an enemy ship. This was the same kouklos or circle formation that the Greeks had used with such good results at Artemisium during the Persian Wars. Formio countered this by utilizing a unique and unorthodox tactic. He lined his ships in a straight line and directed them to circle around the Peloponnesians leisurely, but in a tightening circle which in turn forced the Kouklos to contract and tighten their defensive position, little by little, as they continually brushed past them, which made it seem as if they would attack, but they were ordered not to do so until he gave the signal. This tactic was a risky one, as it left both Athenian flanks utterly vulnerable, and any of the defending ships would only have to move a short distance straight ahead to ram a circling Athenian ship in the side. Formio did this, though, because he hoped that in close quarters, the Peloponnesian ships would not be able to maintain their spacing and would bump into each other and the small interior reserve force, which would cause confusion. He also knew that around dawn, a breeze usually blew in from the gulf, and so he hoped that in the choppy waters that it created, the inexperienced Peloponnesians would have even more difficulty managing their already less maneuverable ships, whereas the more experienced Athenians would not be hindered at all. Thucydides says that when the wind began to blow, Formio's envisions were all right, and collectively it brought disorder amongst the Peloponnesian ranks, as their ships collided into one another while the men tried to push them apart with poles, shouting and cursing at one another so loud amongst the chaos that they couldn't even hear the orders of their captains or the calls of their boatswains. At the most opportune moment when the chaos had reached its height, Formio then gave the signal, and the Athenian fleet fell upon the Peloponnesians. The route was instant and total as they destroyed every ship that they came across, including the flagship with one of the Corinthian commanders, while suffering no casualties of their own. As the massive ships broke up, those that could escape the wreckage fled to Petrae and Daim and Achaea. The Athenians then gave chase and managed to capture 12 Peloponnesian ships, with most of their crews taken as prisoners, which was a little more than 2,000 men. They sailed across the gulf to Malikrium on the Aetolian coastline, where they set up a trophy of victory on Cape Antirium, and after dedicating a captured ship to Poseidon and singing paeans in his praise, they returned in triumph to Napoctis. The Battle of Rheum was Athens' first major naval success in the war. As for the Peloponnesians, they at once sailed with their remaining ships westward along the coast of Caelene in the territory of Elis. Without these reinforcements, the defeated Knemos was forced to abandon the expedition, and so each contingent returned home. He led the remaining Peloponnesian hoplites aboard ships from Lucas to meet the Peloponnesian fleet at Kyleni. With that, the first major Peloponnesian effort during the war at an amphibious offensive assault had ended in a humiliating failure. News of the routing of a larger Peloponnesian fleet shocked the Spartan ephors and other leaders who were directing the war effort against Athens, and his double defeat at Zankinthos and Rheum seriously embarrassed Knemos' reputation. Despite this being their first real sea battle, the Spartans could not believe that their navy was inferior, and so there must have been misconduct somewhere. As a result, they blamed the softness of their allies and the Corinthian commanders for the loss, and in particular, Canemos, who as navarch, was responsible for the entire campaign. This loss, though, did not put an end to the Peloponnesian offensive in the Gulf. If anything, it doubled their efforts, and within a short period of time, the Spartans were ready to respond, to help Canemos rectify his perceived problems. The Spartans sent him three zimbuloi, or advisors. Included among them were Timocrates, Lycophron, and Bracidus, and they had orders to better prepare the fleet to fight another naval battle, and this time not to be driven from the sea by a much smaller force. Their aim was to destroy Formio and his blockaders. To ensure this, as soon as the three Spartans arrived, they set to work with Canemos to order more ships be sent from their allies and to repair the damage to those that they already had in their possession. Also, the troop carriers that had survived the battle were refitted by the shipwrights as fast triremes. In short order, combining the new ships with those that were taken to Stratus and those that had retreated from Rhiam, the Peloponnesians had assembled a fleet of 77 ships. At the same time, Formio had dispatched a messenger to Athens to announce his victory and to request reinforcements as he expected another battle soon, knowing full well that it was not in the nature of the Spartans to yield so easily. The Ecclesia responded to his request, but they were only able to muster up a fleet of another 20 triremes. However, this fleet was first dispatched to Crete, because a Cretan man named Nicias, who was from Gorton and who was a proxenos of the Athenians, had persuaded them to sail against the town of Cadonia on the northwestern coast of Crete. Once the Athenians finished on Crete, these 20 triremes were then to sail around the Peloponnesus to Formio at Naupactus. This is a curious response, though, and one explanation is that the Athenians may have wished to divert Spartan concentration of their forces. But if this were the case, the effort in Crete ultimately failed, and adverse winds forced them to stay at Crete longer than expected. And so Formia was left with just 20 ships to face the Spartan force of what would be 77. Furthermore, the most plausible reason as to why the Athenians did this instead of just sending a much larger fleet, which they had in their inventory, or for that matter to send two fleets out, one to Naupactus and another to Crete, is that due to the plague, they were still restricted by shortages of both healthy men and money to pay them. In fact, it's likely that two to three hundred triremes laid empty in the naval yard. Regardless, while the Athenian reinforcements were detained in Crete, the Peloponnesians at Caelene and Ellis prepared for battle. Once readied, they sailed eastward along the coastline and met up with their infantry at Panormus and Achaea which was to the west of Naupactus, on the opposite shoreline, at the narrowest point in the Gulf of Corinth, about 5 miles. And so Formio refused to engage a force that was now almost four times the size of his own. Corinthian and Sigionian ships would be free to break the Athenian blockade, and in turn blockade his fleet at Naupactus. This ultimately would have shattered Athenian reputation on the sea, and probably would have encouraged their restless subjects to revolt. Formio, though, was a tremendous naval commander, and he was determined not to let this happen. So when his lookouts notified him of the situation, he relocated and anchored his fleet of 20 triremes just outside the narrows of Cape Antareum, at a sandy beach near the Sanctuary of Poseidon, facing west towards the distant isles of Cephalonia and Zankenthos. It was now autumn of 429 BC, and the additional 20 triremes sent from Athens had still not appeared, Formio's only supporters were a few hundred Mycenaean hoplites from Naupactus, who were tasked with protecting the camp while the Athenians were at sea and to aid any Athenian trireme driven ashore during battle. Cape Antireum sat less than a mile across the gulf from Rheum, where the Peloponnesians anchored their fleet of seventy seven triremes. Every morning the Athenians pushed off from their beach and formed a battle line outside the entrance to the gulf to monitor the Peloponnesian fleet. But instead of offering battle to the Athenians, they drilled their crews in the calm waters of the gulf. For a week, the two fleets stared at each other across the narrow water. The Spartans were cautious about sailing out into the open sea for fear of another disaster, while the Athenians, who were outnumbered four to one and were compelled to defend their home harbor at Naupactus, had no incentive to make the first move. Ultimately, though, the three Spartan advisors and Canemos were more eager to bring on a battle before any reinforcements would arrive from Athens. Noticing that their men appeared intimidated by their previous defeat, one of the Peloponnesian commanders, it's not specified which one, exhorted his men in a grand speech for them to be brave despite their inexperience. Similarly, the Athenian morale began to ebb. As they day after day observed the enemy's steady improvement in maneuvers and oarsmanship, and were frightened by the numerical odds that they faced, hoping to reverse the despondent mood, Formio called an assembly of all his men on the beach to encourage them with a grand speech to face the coming battle with confidence, despite the odds. He spoke frankly about the enemy's advantage in numbers and of Spartan bravery. But he also believed that the Peloponnesian allies would be unwilling to risk their lives for the cause of Spartan honor. Then he shared his vision of the coming battle quote, Great forces before now have been beaten by small ones because of a lack of skill or daring. We lack neither. Quote. Formio held a near mystical faith in the invincibility of the Athenian navy, and so his exhortation to his men was meant to remind them that they were Athenians. Which means they are equal or even superior to any enemy force, no matter how great numerically. And so he asked his men to stick to their posts and to maintain their discipline and silence, so that commands could be clearly heard. Finally, he reminded them that they already won a victory over most of the men in this new fleet. Quote, Beaten men never face danger again with the same resolve. End quote. After both sides were properly exhorted. The Peloponnesians ultimately took the initiative the following day at dawn, and sailed out to engage the Athenians. During the days of training, they had managed to forge the motley collection of allied contingents into a well-ordered battle line. With a 4-to-1 advantage in ships, Canemos was able to array his triremes four deep and still match the length of the Athenian line. The Peloponnesian left wing was commanded by Canemos, the center by Lycophron, and the right by Brassidus. The 20 fastest triremes had been brought together into a special squadron, posted on the far end of the right wing, under the command of Timocrates. As the Peloponnesian fleet sailed out into the Gulf, they actually began to sail eastwards, not for the Athenians at Cape Antareum, but for now Formio, realizing that the time for drills and delay was now over, had no choice but to put out his fleet as well, and to keep pace alongside them on the opposite shoreline. As he advanced eastwards, an unknown number of Messenian hoplites, who were the Athenian allies that lived at Naupactus, followed along by land. Formio's triremes rode in a single file along the northern shore with his flagship, the Peralis, halfway down the line, so that if they turned and faced the Peloponnesians for battle, he would be in the center. The superior strength and skill of Formio's crew soon shone, though, as they quickly caught up to the Peloponnesian fleet but it was never Canemos' intention to reach Naupactus first. Its harbor was fortified, and their triremes carried no equipment for siege warfare. His move towards Naupactus then had been a feint to lure Formio into fighting on his terms. It succeeded, and so it was now time to spring the trap. At the narrowest point of the gulf, Canemos gave the signal for his ships to attack, and so the Peloponnesians wheeled about with a sharp left turn. ...to get their fleet vertical so that their farthest right wing, which consisted of their 20 fastest ships, intended to cut off the Athenian fleet from passing into the Gulf. Although Formio's ships were caught broadsided at this maneuver, Canemos had miscalculated at when to call the signal, so the 11 leading Athenian ships were able to escape the Peloponnesian maneuvering and reach the more open waters in the Gulf... The nine other Athenian ships, though, were overtaken as they tried to run through and were driven ashore and disabled. The main body of the Peloponnesian fleet chased after them, eager to take part in what would surely be a historical victory over the Athenians at sea. In the melee, the Athenians on some of the trapped ships remained at their posts and desperately tried to fight off enemy grappling irons and boarding parties as the Peloponnesians tried to commandeer their ships. Many of the crew perished in the process, though some, when resistance became hopeless, leaped down into the shallows and scrambled to land. Those ships that had been successfully emptied by the Peloponnesians were lashed onto and towed off for repair to be used as their own. Others, though, were saved by the Mycenaeans, who in full armor made an amphibious charge from along the shoreline and fought the Peloponnesians from the decks of the Athenian ships. While this was taking place, Timocrates and his squadron of the 20 best Peloponnesian ships were off pursuing the 11 Athenian triremes that had eluded Formio's turning maneuver, but they were outgunned by the Athenians' superior speed. Even if the Athenians could defeat or elude them, though, they would still have to deal with the remaining 57 Peloponnesian ships, so disaster appeared to be certain. Ten of the eleven Athenian triremes managed to reach Naupactus and waited there in close formation on the shore near the Temple of Apollo with their prows outward, forming a barrier of bronze across the harbor, and ready to fight the overwhelming numbers that would soon arrive. These Peloponnesian ships could be heard at a distance chanting the Paeon to Apollo, which was a ritual chant sung as Greek armies or navies advanced into battle, rallied, or celebrated a victory. In this case, they were celebrating what they thought was a surefire victory once they mopped up the remaining Athenian ships. However, this overconfidence proved to be very wrong. The lone remaining Athenian ship that had not yet made it to Naupactus was the Peralis, the flagship of Formio, and it was being pursued by a Leucadian ship, which was Timocrates' flagship, far ahead of the rest of the Peloponnesian fleet. But a merchant vessel happened to be lying at anchor in the deep water off of Naupactus. And so Formio, instead of racing for the protection of Naupactus, ordered his steersman to whirl the ship three-quarters of a circle around, using the anchored merchant ship to protect its exposed side as it turned. With the momentum built up from the turn, it ran the Lucadian ship in the side and sank it. Triremes, built entirely of wood and carrying no cargo, were so buoyant that they would not have actually sunk to the sea bottom when their seams or planks were split by ramming. Instead, they filled with water, becoming non-maneuverable, and remained floating just at or below the surface of the sea. From there, they were collected and towed back as booty to the victor's camp after battle. When Thucydides uses the verb katadue here, which literally means to sink down, he must be referring to the partial sinking of the hulls as they filled with water, and not a literal sinking of the ship to the seafloor. Anyways, the Spartan commander Timocrates was on board the Leucadian ship that was rammed, and so he killed himself when the ship began to sink, choosing death rather than being captured alive by the enemy. All of this happened so suddenly and so unexpectedly that it produced a panic amongst the rest of the 19 Peloponnesian ships, who were far enough behind that they didn't get a good enough visual of what happened, except that their flagship had been sunk and because during their excitement of a perceived victory, they had fallen out of proper alignment, the Peloponnesian fleet soon descended into utter chaos. Some ran aground in ignorance of the shallow waters near an while others had put their oars into the water in order to stop their ships and wait for the rest of the fleet, which turned out to be a very terrible mistake, as it left them motionless and easy prey for an attacker. Elated at what they had just witnessed, the nine other Athenian ships let out a great cheer and sailed forward to join the Peralis in attacking the Peloponnesians who still outnumbered them two to one. Despite this numerical advantage, the Peloponnesian triarchs had become embarrassed by their mistakes and the disorder in which their fleet found themselves, so they gave the order to retreat eastwards to Panormus. The Athenians chased after them and were able to take out the six vessels closest to them. They killed some of the crews and took others as prisoners. Meanwhile, the Messenians, who had in full armor made an amphibious boarding of the ships along the shoreline, were still fighting the main Peloponnesian fleet from the decks of the Athenian ships. Canemos and the other Peloponnesian commanders were already pushed onto the defensive, and so they were even more startled to see the remnant of Timocrates ships sailing towards them with the Athenians in hot pursuit. As a result, at once, Canemos made the order for the rest of the Peloponnesian ships to join their comrades in flight. Those that had managed to tow away captured Athenian triremes had to cut their prizes adrift in order to save themselves, and so the Athenians were able to recover 8 of their 9 ships that had been captured previously. In order to do this, Formio signaled a halt, and the remaining Peloponnesian ships were able to escape, taking with them one Athenian trireme along with its crew. Even with this loss, Formio and his small force had won quite the victory. And so on their return to Naupactus, they set up a victory trophy by the Temple of Apollo. They then fetched their dead and picked up any wreckage that the currents brought to the shoreline, including the body of Timocrates. The Peloponnesians were also allowed to gather their dead under truce, and they even set up their own victory trophy at Panormus in Achaea for the defeat that they inflicted upon the initial ten Athenian ships and dedicated the sole ship that they managed to capture. Afterwards, the twenty reinforcement triremes finally arrived from Crete, and although they were too late for the battle, their presence discouraged the Peloponnesians from attempting another offensive assault on Apoctus, or on Formio's position. Although they still outnumbered the Athenians more than three to one, that night, under the cover of darkness, all of the Peloponnesian fleet sailed away home the Leucadian ships westward to Lucas, and the rest eastward through the gulf to Corinth. Despite the fact that each side set up a trophy for victory, it was clear that the Athenians had won. They had retained their fleet, their base at Naupactus, and their freedom of movement in the Corinthian Gulf. This was such a pivotal victory for the Athenians, because if they had lost Naupactus, they would have lost their ability to impede Peloponnesian commerce in the west, which would have encouraged more naval operations and possibly spark rebellions in their empire. And so this victory preserved Athenian naval supremacy in the Gulf, and it would put an end to Peloponnesian attempts to challenge it during this early period of the war. In addition, the Spartans would be so cowed by the memory of their defeats at Formio's hands that it would impact their military decision-making in the coming years. The attacks on naupactus failed because the Peloponnesians lacked experience at sea, which led them to make costly errors and to be fearful in combat. Pericles had foreseen that behavior, and truth be told, he was quite accurate in his predictions in the war up to that point. The one thing he couldn't have predicted, though, was the plague, which claimed the lives of many of his friends and fellow citizens. In particular, 429 BC saw the death of his sister, his first wife, and many of those who were the most serviceable to him in his administration of the city. Despite this, Plutarch says that he did not abandon his spirit because of these calamities, nor did he even weep either at the funeral rites or at the grave of any of his closest friends and family members he no doubt felt that he had to keep it together for the sake of the Athenians. However, that all changed with the death of both of his legitimate sons, first Xanthippus and then Peralis. He was able to keep his composure with Xanthippus' death, but as he laid a wreath upon the body of Peralis, he broke out into wailing and shed a multitude of tears, which was traditionally the role of female relatives at funerals. He was no longer able to keep a stiff upper lip, Typical of Greek men, as the death of his two sons meant that he no longer had any surviving heirs. He did, however, have an illegitimate son to Aspasia, named Pericles II, or sometimes called Pericles the Younger. But his citizenship law, which he passed over two decades earlier, that required both parents to be Athenians, prohibited the young Pericles from inheriting his father's estate. So the elder Pericles begged the Athenians before the Ecclesia to grant a special exception for his young son, in light of his special service to the city. Despite the recent animosity that some may have felt against him, the Athenians must have felt pity on Pericles and granted his request. Still, his morale was now broken, and he would frequently burst into tears unprovoked, and not even Aspasia's companionship could console him. With most of his family and friends having already succumbed to the plague, it's not a shock then that he himself was stricken with the disease just a few months later, in September of 429 BC. However, it was not an acute, violent attack on his body, as in the case with most others, but it lingered, and as Plutarch puts it, "...the plague used up his body slowly and undermined the loftiness of his spirit." As we mentioned in episode 80, Plutarch tells us that Pericles, a confirmed rationalist, had even tied a magical amulet around his neck as he lied sick with the plague. It was taken as proof that the statesman really was in a bad way if he was prepared to put up with such nonsense, as Plutarch puts it. Unfortunately, the amulet was unsuccessful and he died shortly thereafter. Very little is known about his burial, but Pausanias in the 2nd century AD records that he saw the tomb of Pericles along the road coming out of the Academy of Aristotle. Plutarch relays an anecdote that just before his death, Pericles' friends were concentrated around his bed, and believing him to be asleep, they began to discuss his many virtues, his greatness, his power, and his many achievements, both during peace and during wartime. Pericles, though, had heard their conversation and sat up to express his surprise at what accomplishments they chose to enumerate, as he believed that such things were most to do with fortune and had been achieved by many, not just him. He pointed out that they forgot to mention his greatest and most beautiful achievement, that, quote, no living Athenian ever put on mourning because of me, end quote. This was the response of a man with a burdened conscience to those who accused him of deliberately bringing on a war that he might have diverted. Furthermore, when Pericles died, the plague had been ravaging Athens for over a year now due to his policy of bringing everybody into the city. The Athenian treasury was running dry, his primary defensive strategy laid in ruins, and there was no prospect for victory. Only when his successors turned to a more aggressive strategy did the Athenians level the playing field and achieve a position that almost brought victory on more than one occasion. And so it's not surprising that Pericles' strategy in the Peloponnesian War has brought criticism that raises questions about his capacity as a military leader. However, for Thucydides, Pericles' death was a disaster for Athens, since he believed that his successors were inferior to him, as they preferred to incite all of the bad habits of the rabble and followed an unstable policy, endeavoring to be popular rather than most useful. With these bitter comments, Thucydides not only laments the loss of a man he admired, but he also heralds the flickering of Athens's unique glory and grandeur. He says this about Pericles, his impact on Athens and his predecessors. Quote, "As long as he led the state in peacetime, he kept to a moderate policy and kept it safe. It was under his leadership that Athens reached her greatest heights, and when the war came, it appears that he also judged its power correctly." Pericles lived for two years and six months after the war began, and after his death his foresight about the war was acknowledged still more. For he had said that if the Athenians stayed on the defensive, maintained their navy, and did not try to expand their empire in wartime, thereby endangering the state, they would win out. But they acted opposite to his advice in every way, and when their efforts failed, they harmed the state's conduct of the war." And so Thucydides makes it absolutely clear that Pericles was right in the strategy that he had adopted, and if the Athenians had stuck to it, they would have won the war. Plutarch accepted Thucydides' judgment and added further defense against the charges of cowardice and lack of enterprise that his enemies were launching against Pericles. To Plutarch, the actions that provoked such accusations instead revealed prudence, moderation, and a desire to protect the safety of the Athenians. In any case, Pericles' death deprived Athens of a leader with unique qualities, who as a brilliant politician could single-handedly determine policy by persuading the Athenians to adopt and remain committed to it by restraining them from overly ambitious undertakings and by encouraging them when they had lost confidence. If Pericles had recovered, he might have been able to hold the Athenians to a consistent policy, as none of his successors could. Without him, at times the Athenians were rudderless, and they would miss him sorely. Pericles at this point had guided strategy for the Athenian military for about 20 years, so it's safe to say that with his death, Athens would embark into a new and unknown chapter. Meanwhile, with their second humbling naval defeat, Canemus, Bracidus, and the other Peloponnesian generals were reluctant to return home and face the backlash that would surely come from their failed expedition, and so they were easily persuaded by the Megarians, when it was suggested to them, that they should attack the Piraeus. Although this would have been an incredibly bold undertaking, particularly for Sparta, one thing going in the Peloponnesians' favor was that due to their unquestioned superiority on the sea, the Athenian harbor was basically left unguarded and open. In addition, the Athenians probably would have been overconfident following their two remarkable naval victories in the Corinthian Gulf over a much larger Peloponnesian fleet, and probably were reeling after the loss of their greatest leader. Furthermore, it was now November, after the sailing season for the year had concluded, so the Athenians also would not have expected such an audacious attack from the defeated and disgraced Peloponnesian navy. All of this means that there would be no fleet on the lookout in the harbor, and so the Peloponnesian plan depended on surprise. They were to send the oarsmen from their fleet, with their own oars, cushion, and rowlock thong, overland from Corinth to the Megarian port of Nysiae on the Saronic Gulf. There, they would find 40 unmanned Megarian triremes, which they would use to sail immediately to the unsuspecting and unprotected Piraeus. The first step went as planned, but after they arrived at Nysiae one evening, The plan was modified as the Spartan commanders grew frightened by the risk of the intended expedition, and there apparently was also bad winds. Instead, they sent the 40 Megarian triremes against Salamis. There, the Athenians had a fort at Budorum and a squadron of three triremes to monitor and prevent any vessels from sailing in or out of Megara. But in the dead of night, they were overwhelmed by the 40 Megarian Triremes, who attacked and captured the fort, towed off the three Athenian Triremes empty, and surprising the inhabitants, they began to lay waste to the rest of the island. But if the Peloponnesians had any designs to continue on to Piraeus that evening, attacking Salamis first ensured that this wouldn't have been a surprise to the Athenians, as those at the Salaminian fort set off fire signals to alert the Athenians that they were under attack. Soon, the city of Athens found itself in panic, and Thucydides says that this was as serious as any threat that occurred during the war, as the Athenian people believed that Salamis had already fell and that any minute now the Peloponnesians would descend on Piraeus. Thucydides here makes it known that he believes that if the Spartans hadn't been so averse to risk-taking, they could have easily took Piraeus. But their timidity proved costly, because by dawn, the Athenians had already assembled in full force to guard the port and had sent out their fleet to Salamis. At the first sight of the Athenian ships, the Peloponnesians fled back to Megara with their plunder, captives, and the three captured Athenian triremes. Thucydides also says that the state of their ships had caused the Peloponnesians some anxiety as well, as it had been a long while since they had been launched, and they were now watertight, and their seams began to open from spending so long in dry dock. Although it was important to regularly dry out trireme hulls to maintain their speed and performance, an excessively dry hull would leak until the planks had absorbed enough water to swell and close the joints between them. And the more the triremes leaked, the slower they would become. Anyways, once they arrived at Megara, they returned back on foot to Corinth, and the Athenians finding them no longer at Salamis sailed back to Piraeus as well. Athens was safe, but the result was that they henceforth made arrangements to ensure that no such surprise attack on Salamis or the Piraeus in the future could succeed. At about the same time, in the beginning of the winter of 429-428 BC, events took place in the northern regions between the Macedonians and Thracians. As we discussed last episode, Sittalchus, the Odrysian king of the Thracians, had been at a long-standing variance with Perdiccas II, and so he decided to lead an army against Macedonia and the neighboring cities of the Halkidiki. Thucydides says that the reason for the campaign was that Sittalchus, upon entering an alliance with the Athenians, had agreed to provide troops and logistical support in order to put an end to the Halkidian revolt in Thrace. In doing so, he brought along with him Amintus II the son of Philip I and nephew of Perdiccas. As we discussed in episode 89, Philip and Perdiccas had quarreled over the Macedonian throne, so now Satalkes had aimed at installing Amintas as the new king of Macedon. He did so with the promise of naval support from Athens, who was angry at Perdiccas for switching allegiances once again earlier that year by sending troops to support Canemos at Acarnania, though they didn't arrive in time for the battle and so the Athenians voted to send Hagnon as general with a fleet and as many soldiers as they could get together. However, that promised Athenian support never materialized, probably because the Peloponnesians had attacked Salamis, and they decided that this was no time to undertake a large expedition from home. Plus, the continuing shortage of manpower and money probably factored into the equation. Despite this, the empire of the thracian Odrysians extended along the northern Aegean coastline from Abdera to the mouth of the Danube along the Black Sea. As a result, Satakis still had a large number of forces in his empire that he could summon for this expedition, and so he was able to gather 150,000 men, a third of which, so about 50,000, were cavalry. Thucydides provides a long list of which Thracian tribes provided troops in their locations, and he also gives a description of the immensity of Satakes' empire, as well as their wealth and a few of their customs to illustrate his power. Satakis assembled his large army at Doberis in Paeonia, which was the region to the west of Thrace and to the north of Macedon. From there, he marched his army southwards through Upper Macedonia and ultimately into Lower Macedonia, where the dominions of Perdiccas lied. The Macedonians were unable to take the field directly against such a large force, so they withdrew and shut themselves up in their fortresses. Crossing the Axios river, Satakis was able to take Idomene by assault, which had once been the seat of Philip's government. By negotiation, he also gained Gortynia, Atalante, and some other places, as these came over for the love of Philip's son, the II. He also laid siege to Europas, but failed to take it, so he next advanced towards the Halkidiki by laying waste to the regions of Megdonia, Crestonia, and Anthemos. The Macedonian infantry stayed put, and only occasionally was their cavalry sent out into the field against the Thracians. They were armed with breastplates and were some of the finest cavalry in Greece, but they would have ran into considerable risk taking an army this large head-on, so they only harassed the Thracians with hit-and-run tactics. Although Setalkes had substantial forces, he delayed an attack on the cities of the southern Halkidiki, as defeating and taking them depended on the collaboration of the Athenian fleet that never arrived. So after ravaging the land of the Batians and the Halkidians, Setalkes opened up negotiations with Perdiccas while he remained in these parts. Those to the south, such as the Thessalians and the Greeks as far north as Thermopylae, who were all enemies of Athens, feared that this large Thracian army might advance against them too, so they all prepared accordingly. But Satalkes hadn't really succeeded in the objectives of his mission, and his large army was running out of provisions after being in the field for around 30 days in total, eight of which were in the Halkidiki. And so when Suthis, his nephew and the highest ranking officer in the Thracian army, advised him that it was best to retreat without delay, he returned to Thrace as quickly as he could. Thucydides, though, says that Suthis had been secretly won over by Perdiccas by the promise of his sister, Stratonike in marriage with a rich dowry, and so this, not logistical concerns, dictated his advice. Also during the winter 429-428 BC, after the dispersion of the Peloponnesian fleet, Formio sailed from Naupactus westward along the coast to Astacus disembarked, and marched into the interior of Acarnania with 400 Athenian and 400 Mycenaean hoplites to ensure its political loyalty. If you remember from last episode, the Corinthians had reinstated Avarchus as tyrant of Astachus, the previous winter after he had been expelled by the Athenians. Though the Athenians were able to ensure Astacus's political loyalty, Thucydides doesn't mention how. Whether they expelled Avarchus once again, or the tyrant pledged his support to Athens in order to keep his position. Regardless, Formio did not just stop there in his efforts to consolidate Athenian power in Akarnania. After expelling some suspected pro-Peloponnesian persons from Stratus, Caranta, and other places, and restoring a man named Kynas in charge of Caranta, who Canemos had presumably expelled, Formio even pondered attacking Oneidae, a place unlike the rest of Akarnania, as it had always been pro-Peloponnesian and hostile to the Athenians. However, the topography around Oneidae made this an impossible task during the winter. That's because the Achilleus River forms lakes where it falls into the sea around Oneidae, and opposite of it lies the Akinades Islands at the river's mouth. The current there is strong, deep, and turbid, and so they determined that the water would make an attack on Oneidae an impossible task for any army during the winter season. Then they returned to their ships and sailed away from Acarnania back to Napactus. Towards the end of the winter, Formio bade farewell to his Mycenaean allies as his crew sailed home to Athens, taking with them all of the Peloponnesian ships that they had captured, as well as their captured Peloponnesian prisoners. When Formio arrived back in Athens, in order to commemorate his triumphs, the Athenians voted to dedicate an offering of shields and prowls from captured Peloponnesian warships to Apollo and stoa in his sanctuary at Delphi, and we have evidence of an inscribed stella listing the names of the eight members of the Peloponnesian League that Formio had defeated. After this winter campaign in early 428 BC, the 60-year-old Formio is not recorded as having held command again. Since he was by far the best naval commander that Athens had at the moment, it's likely that he died shortly thereafter. His death would be a great loss to the Athenians. In his few years of activity, he left a deep imprint on the early course of the Peloponnesian War. An Athenian defeat in the Corinthian Gulf would have been a devastating blow to Athens' influence in the Greek Northwest and to the city's reputation for naval invincibility. And he was able to revive the Athenian's will to fight, because even with the loss of his dear friend Pericles, after his two victories at sea, there was no more talk of suing the Spartans for peace. It is no surprise then that after Formio died, he would be remembered fondly by the Athenians so much that they commemorated his service to the state by erecting a statue honoring him on the Acropolis, near the western side of the Parthenon, and his ashes were given a place of honor just outside the city gates, as he was buried in a tomb next to the grave of Pericles on the sacred way. The Carnanians also held him in the highest regard, and for the rest of the war, any time they sent to Athens for aid, they specified that a son or other kinsman of Formio must be sent along to help them, just as Formio once did. Formio's campaigns in the northwest had begun when he dedicated a lead tripod to Dionysus, and it was in the theater of Dionysus where he underwent his ultimate apotheosis. To honor his victories at Rheum and Alpactus. a young Athenian playwright named Eupolis wrote a comedy called Taxiarchoi, or Taxiarchs, named after its chorus of regimental officers. Although this work no longer survives, it's believed to have been composed the following year in 427 BC, at either the Linnea or the City Dionysia. The plot brought Dionysus down from Mount Olympus to learn the art of war from Formio, who put the soft and pleasure-loving god of wine through hard training in rowing and combat skills. At one point, the actor playing Dionysus actually rowed a little boat across the stage, while the actor who played Formio stood in the boat, giving instructions and complaining when he was splashed by a misplaced stroke. Formio also introduced Dionysus to the celebrated reed mat on which he slept when he was in the field. Eupolis's popular comedy, along with accounts of Formio's victories in histories and tactical manuals, ensured that the great general's fame was carried down for generations, and his stratagems would long be remembered and imitated by other naval commanders. In fact, modern historians consider Formio to be in the class of Athens's three greatest naval commanders, alongside Themistocles and Cimon. As the third year of the war came to a close, Attica had been free from invasion, and the Athenians had somehow adverted seaborne defeats, but the reserve fund continued to decline, leaving an estimated balance of 1,450 talents. There was only enough left to permit the war effort to continue at its current pace for one additional year. In addition, despite the fact that the original strategy for victory had now been deemed a failure by the people, the Athenians still had not yet formulated a substitute and had no way to compel the enemy to make peace. Furthermore, Pericles was dead, and nobody in Athens could fill the void that he left behind. For over four decades, he had been at the forefront of Athenian politics, and his overwhelming presence cast a shadow over his rivals and successors alike. The plague had also afflicted his sons, and his brilliant but unpredictable ward Alcibiades was still too young to hold a generalship or other elected office. For the first time in a century, Athens seemed lacking in leaders. The Athenians were not only broke— plague-stricken and leaderless, but the following year also saw a major revolt from one of their largest subject allies, and how the Athenians handled this crisis could very well threaten the survival of their empire. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 93, Revolts in the Empire.